Would you pray with me before we look at the scriptures today? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we're thankful that we get to worship here in this public space. We're thankful for the leaders here at Sheridan, for the students, for the people who keep the building clean and running well. We pray a blessing upon all of them. We pray that your spirit would be especially present here every day of the week, watching over these children, helping them to get this message that, that we believe in them, that they have potential, that we love them, that you love them. God, um, that they can learn and grow and feel safe here in this space. That's our prayer. It's been our prayer for nine years, and we've seen you do amazing things here at Sheridan School. We pray that you would continue to work and invite us into it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So our conversation over the last six weeks, if you haven't been with us, has been focused on how we live in public as disciples of Jesus Christ, which we thought we needed to address as we were going through this insaneness of the election season. That's coming to a close now. There is a date where there's an election, right? What is the date? November 8th. November 8th. And, then, and then after that, we can all, what happens? What do the news outlets do after that? That's what they're wondering. We have this tendency in, in 21st century culture to separate out private, religious, or spiritual life from public work, neighborhood, public conversation life. And at Mill City, over the last few years, we've been trying to say, that's not a good separation. Your spiritual life, your beliefs about who God is, your attempts to live out faith and following Jesus Christ are supposed to intersect with your public life. If you divide them out, you're kind of dividing yourself, and that's not a healthy way to live. And so in this conversation, we've been talking specifically about how does Jesus and his disciples model public engagement for us who are living in a crazy 21st century world and trying to figure out how to be public disciples. And we've had a number of conversations over the last few weeks about how Jesus has done this. He's, he's shown us how to invite people in who are different from us and listen to them and eat with them. He's talked about the, uh, the power of healing in people's lives. Uh, Pastor D came and talked to us about advocating for people who don't have a voice. JD talked some about storytelling last week and the way that Jesus told stories to draw us into public engagement. And today what we're going to do is talk about the way that Jesus confronts people, okay? So it's really like low-key low kind of conversation. The way that Jesus confronts people and issues publicly as part of his, of his ministry. Uh, and so to, to try to lighten the conversation a little before we dig into that, I found this goofy conflict resolution animal setup. Have you guys done this before? You've seen these? This will answer all your questions. We probably won't even have to look at the Bible after this. I'm I'm just kidding. Okay, so this, if you've never seen this, a little bit of a scale to help you understand your own conflict resolution style. So I'm gonna describe them, and then I'll invite you to raise your hand to self-identify which is your conflict resolution style. And if you're embarrassed by that, you don't have to participate, but it'd be fun if you did, okay? Is everybody game? Okay, so on the, on the left side, you have an assertiveness. How assertive are you on the bottom? It's how cooperative are you? So if you're a turtle, that means whenever conflict comes up, you're just, you're turtling up. You're avoiding it. You're not going to cooperate and you're not going to assert your opinion. You're just going to avoid conflict altogether. Raise your hand if you're a conflict avoider. There's like seven of you. Okay. It makes sense that you'd part, be part of this church if you weren't a conflict avoider, probably. Okay. On the top there, we have the shark. And the shark is somebody who's going to compete and win and be right and win arguments. 
and cooperation, they don't really care that much about cooperation. They care about winning and their perspective. Raise your hand if you put yourself in the shark category. All right, I see some of you sharks. Some of you are my friends. <laughs> teddy bear, of opposite end of the spectrum. The teddy bear just wants to get along with everyone and have a hug. They don't care if their opinion is even heard. They just want to be hugged and loved and they want to love you. Teddy bear people, raise your hands. Yay. All right. We have a good number. Either we're just scared to admit this or we have very few of any of these people. Have any of you else noticed whenever you come across one of these schemes, it's always the upper right corner that's the correct one? Does anyone? Just me? In the middle, there's the compromising fox. He's the person who or she is the person who's going to kind of give up something to get something and make a deal. You know, you're in the middle, you assert yourself, but you're willing to cooperate. How many, how many fox do we have? Okay, I want to just note who these people are. We should have been keeping track. Okay, and then finally, since you know this is the right answer, the collaborating wise owl is the one who asserts themselves, but also can collaborate with other people. Where are you, wise owls? Look, look at, oh yeah, look. Okay, Christian Ann, you're a wise owl? I love you. Yeah, that's what JD says? Okay. We all have different conflict resolution styles, right? That's the point. And when, when I say that Jesus confronts people, he does it in lots of different ways. Jesus is a confrontational person. Sometimes I think we talk about Jesus in ways that make him sound not confrontational. This guy is confronting and in conflict pretty much the whole story that we have of his life. And, and he's causing conversations, he's causing a stir. So what does that mean for us as we talk about being public disciples or going public, engaging as people who want to confront issues publicly as Christians? So maybe when you hear the word confrontation, a certain sort of style, one of those styles, maybe the shark style or something, comes to your mind. And when I started thinking about it, the first thing that came to my mind was this kind of in your face, very loud, if you think since it's football season, like a coach sort of screaming at a player, helmet to helmet sort of style. I don't know, wait, the coach wouldn't be wearing a helmet. They're yelling at him uh, face to face. I was at a soccer game not that long ago with my kids. My kids are playing soccer. Chris and I are watching them. It's like tiny kids, it's like kindergarten kids soccer. And over to the side, uh, about halfway through the game, this, this elderly woman, and she was a grandmother of another, of another child, she, she just starts yelling at my kids about not passing enough and like demanding different performance from them. And I turned and I was like, okay, so maybe, is this gonna be a public confrontation right now? Like she's screaming at my kids. And then the mom is sitting next to her, just looks over at Chris and I, and she's like, I'm so sorry, I don't, I don't know. So, so sometimes at, the, at these fields, some of you spend time at the fields Public confrontation, you might think of that image when you hear the word confronting. Crazy parents, some of us are crazy parents yelling at coaches, yelling at kids. The online version of this I call the mic drop truth bomb, okay? Some of you have seen these, lots of them on the internet lately. There's not really any kind of equal confrontation, it's just I'm gonna tell you what's true, post it on my Facebook page, drop the mic and walk away. Like, I don't even need to do anything else because whatever I said was this sort of gotcha moment and my political opinion 
or yours has been completely destroyed, there's not even, I don't even need to read the comments. It's over with. It's done. These are the kinds of confrontations I think we're, a lot of us are thinking of when, when we're imagining the word confrontation. And on a serious note, I do think that there's some anxiety around some of us who feel like we need to stand for truth in the midst of uh, a, a culture or cultures where it seems like truth is sort of optional. And I think we need to be really careful about how we do that because sometimes the standing for truth uh, is more about us and our own anxiety than it is about actually trying to engage somebody else. So there's this great book by a guy named Vincent Bacote from, uh, from Wheaton. It's called The Political Disciple. And he talks about how sometimes he hears people saying they're, they're doing these things. They're dropping these mic, bomb, mic, mic drop truth bombs on the internet. And then they say, well, people are persecuting me because I'm saying what's true. And they're, they're calling me hater or zealot or whatever. And they're interpreting that as just a modern day version of being persecuted on the internet if they get a whole bunch of comments. And what he says, I love, this is a quick quote from his book. He says, we cannot wear the offense of other people as a badge of honor because we represent truth while they do not. What he's saying is just offending people, going on the internet and just saying something that you know is going to offend people because maybe that will make you feel better that you, that you said it, that you weren't afraid to say it, uh, actually can do a lot more harm than good, right? And that doesn't mean that you can't stand for true things or share true things, but I want to challenge you if, if that's your perspective or if one of these confrontational styles is your default style, that I don't think that's the way Jesus does this. So I want to look at some of the ways in which he, did, he does that. Now, the other end of the spectrum, right before we look at some examples from Jesus, is this one of silence, of conflict avoidance, of never saying anything to anyone or never engaging in conversation on the Internet or anywhere else. Uh, this perspective of, of never mixing religion and politics, of silent judgment of other people. Well, that's not a way that Jesus engages publicly either. And so if we think of these as the end of the confrontation spectrum, these challenging in your face, I don't really care what anybody else responds sorts of perspectives, or you have tons of opinions and you're mostly silent about all of them except for like one or two people in your life who you tell constantly what you think and why everybody else should think that. Those are, those are ends of the spectrum I think we want to avoid. And I want to present the ways in which Jesus is confrontational and ask us to think about what that means for us. So First, let me, let me um, describe in very brief terms a whole bunch of confrontations that he has, and then we're going to dig into one in particular. Jesus confronts religious hypocrisy consistently by challenging religious leaders face-to-face. -face. Jesus confronts unbelief or lack of faith in his own followers most of the time by challenging them to trust him more and to have more faith. Jesus confronts evil by casting demons out of people who are demon-possessed. Jesus confronts the misuse of the temple by flipping tables over in anger and throwing people out of God's house. Jesus confronts wrong priorities by inviting Martha to take a break from her work and sit at his feet with her sister Mary. Jesus confronts a lack of understanding of God and Scripture by describing what life will really be like in the kingdom come. Jesus confronts the wrong motivations of people asking him questions by telling them stories that reveals what's most important 
to God. Jesus confronts misinterpretation of God's word by declaring that he is the point of the scriptures that everyone is asking him about. Jesus confronts a misunderstanding of certain current events and tragedies by inviting people to repent in the wake of those tragedies, to turn towards God, rather than to figure out who's to blame for the tragedy. These are just a few of the ways that I saw Jesus confronting people throughout the scriptures, and we can make a much longer list. But here's a way to think about all of them, I think, that, that can pull them all together. If you'll put this on the screen for me, Adam. As you look at Jesus confronting people, you find that Jesus confronts all of these things by standing in the in-between. He confronts all of these things by standing in the middle and pointing to a different way, a kingdom-oriented way of seeing the world and seeing the options in front of him. So I want to take a more in-depth look at one more confrontation in John chapter 8. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along with me, or you can read along on the screen. In John chapter 8, Jesus' uh, authority is being questioned. There's some division over some people who think he's the Messiah and some people who don't. Uh, and he had just been teaching and engaging with some people, and then night came, and here's where we pick up the story. It says they all went home, people who were engaging with Jesus, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is a place where he often went to pray and be by himself. At dawn, so it's dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. So image this with me, right? Jesus has maybe been up all night. We don't know. He's at the Mount of Olives. He comes back at dawn. People at dawn are immediately gathering around him. He sits down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. When I was thinking about all the different stories we could talk about with Jesus confronting people, and there are many of them, some of them I just gave you a summary of, for some reason this one kept grabbing my heart for this moment in our life in the United States of America. This is a trap for Jesus, right? The text tells us they're trying to trap him. What's the trap? The trap is you have a group of religious leaders who are saying, okay, either you're going to uphold the law of Moses and tell us that we're supposed to stone this woman who we caught in adultery, or 
you're going to be soft on sin and condone her sin and defend her. Now, either way, we're going to have you because we'll either put you on the hook for killing this woman, which will trouble your followers, or we can claim that you really don't even believe in God's law through Moses. You see the trap? Side note, I seriously think this trap seems like most public conversations that people are having today. It almost seems like every public conversation is a setup. Well, you're either here or you're here. You're either defending these folks or those folks. You're either on this side of that issue or you don't. You either believe in the Bible or you don't. You're either going to vote like a Christian or you're not going to vote like a Christian. Either you're standing up for truth or you're soft on sin. It sort of feels like that's every conversation that I hear these days. Now, Jesus knows that these things are traps. He's been dodging and walking through these traps most of his ministry life. There's not a win for him in this. So let's look at his response. First, he has this bizarre response. He's questioned by these people. It's still morning. People are standing around. This woman who's been pulled out of a bed is standing there with him. And what does he do? He kneels down and starts writing something in the, on the ground, in the dust. Who knows what sort of floor it was? Now, that's weird, right? I mean, you ask somebody a question, and they just kneeled down and started writing on the floor. Many scholars have pondered, like, what is he writing? What was he writing? Was he quoting something? Was he telling them something? Was he doodling? What was he doing? But one thing I think he was doing in that moment was he was pausing. You can imagine the commotion of these leaders coming in, busting in with probably a half-clothed woman standing in front of everyone at dawn in the temple. It's a commotion. And there's a motion. And so he's, he just pauses and waits a minute. And I think we could all learn a lot from just that one little response. When people are sort of coming at us and asking us questions or pressuring us from answers, it would be good to just pause. Doodle in the dirt if you want. Take a minute. Be silent. Think about your response. Don't respond out of anger or emotion or reaction. Just give it a second. Let it sit for a minute. After he has silence for a second, mentally, he doesn't do this out loud, but he sees the trap and he rejects their categories. And a couple of weeks ago, I told you, one of the things we have to be doing as people who are f trying to follow Jesus in the 21st century is not accept the categories that other people set up for you. You can't accept binary decisions that other people set up with you, especially if they're not seen through the lens of what it means to be part of God's kingdom. Jesus rejects their categories. He's not sitting there thinking, well, either I'm going to support the law of Moses or I'm going to back this woman. He rejects their categories because they're using the law to just justify themselves and justify their condemnation of this woman. If they were really concerned about the law and the upholding of the law, they would have brought the man with them too, right? You notice that the guy caught in adultery is nowhere to be found. They just brought the woman. So if they were really, from a pure heart perspective, worried about making sure that Moses' law was being upheld, they would have brought them both but they didn't. They just brought the woman. So Jesus rejects their categories. He says, I'm not going to decide based on the binary options that you just gave me. 
And, and the third thing that he does is he essentially just holds a mirror up to these people who are asking him the questions. He says in just one sentence, here's, here's your mirror. If any of you have no sin and you're so worried about keeping everyone pure from sin, then go ahead and throw the first stone. Jesus, one of Jesus' primary concerns in confronting people is that we talk about the heart, not just opinions or ideas, but what, where our heart and our actions really lie. And then he bends down again. So he, he, he confronts them with this mirror, and then he bends down again, and he keeps writing. Now, the text doesn't say this, but this is the only way I've been able to imagine it all week. I was trying to physically position the players, the characters in this story. And I like to think this. I like to think that the accusers are here and this woman has been thrown into the conversation and the way that Jesus decided to physically position himself, if she were standing right here, was to, to go like this and stand right between them. I don't know that that's true. That's, that's just my interpretation of it. But it would be like Jesus to put himself physically in between the accusers and the accused, right? Now imagine if that were true, just for a second. If that were true, and he says, go ahead and throw the first stone, and he's bending down like this to doodle, what's at least possible in that moment for him? He's going to get hit with a rock or 50. It's at least possible that he's putting himself physically at risk to defend this person and says, go ahead, throw the first stone, and you'll hit me too. I don't know that that's what happened, but I like to imagine it because that's exactly the way that Jesus lives his life. He stands in the gap. He stands in the in-between, confronting sin and evil in every form. And once everyone walks away from him and from her in the story and they're left with this void in the temple and probably a few followers or listeners on that are still there, he turns to the woman and asks her, did nobody, did nobody condemn you? And then he looks her in the eye and he says, then I don't condemn you either. You are not a person who is condemned. And in that moment, he restores her. He stood up for her. He confronted the bullies and sent them on their way. And then he looked at her and said, you are forgiven and redeemed. And out of that forgiveness, out of that message of saying, you are not condemned, he then tells her, now go and change the way you live your life. Don't fall into the same pitfalls that you've been falling into. Leave your life of sin. Don't let sin define you anymore. Don't let sin define your identity. Don't let sin define your behavior. You have a new chance to go on and move out and live differently. Can you imagine what her day was like? That was the start of the day. Can you imagine the stories that she must have told her friends when she left the temple? Can you imagine how she was transformed by this engagement? When you listen to this story and you think about Jesus confronting people, where do you naturally put yourself in the story? This is a good question anytime you're reading scripture. Do you see yourself primarily as being in Jesus' position? Do you see yourself primarily as being one of the accusers? Do you feel or have you experienced 
more like what it's like to be in the accused position, like the woman in the story? Or are you one of the onlookers who just are seeing this and watching it, but maybe not directly participating? Where do you see yourself in this story? I think in the ways in which we're trying to engage in the 21st century, all of these things are happening. Some Christians are behaving like they're the accusers, telling everybody where they're wrong and what they ought to be doing. Some Christians are huddling in the corner, feeling like they can't take another anti-Christian message from the cultures that they live in. Some people are trying to stand in the gap and follow Jesus' leaders. Some of us are just sitting on the sidelines watching things go by, trying to stay safe. How is God inviting us to confront publicly the things that are not in line with what God wants for us? How is God inviting us to be part of confronting publicly the things that are not in line with what God wants for us? I I wanted to give you four quick things that I think if you want to scribble these four down, they'd be good things to take away from, from today's message. Here's the first thing I notice in all of these confrontations. Jesus places himself at risk in the confrontation. There is no Monday morning quarterbacking for Jesus. He is in the game. He is in the line of fire. He is at the Pharisee's house. Even if the only thing we did was at least have disagreements with people in person, face-to-face, we'd be infinitely better off than where we are right now. He always puts himself where he has something at stake in the confrontation. Does that make sense to you? He never steps into conversations where he's not personally willing to risk. I think that's really important. A major point of all of his confrontation is to challenge people to trust God more than they do right now. He's really not interested in telling people where they're wrong. That's why he asks so many questions. He's interested in inviting them to trust him and to allow their way of life and their way of thinking to be shaped by their relationship with Christ. This one maybe is the most important for us right now. He loves the people that he confronts, right? He's always telling people you have to love people, even people who are your enemies, even the people who you can't understand at all how they look at the world. He's always loving these people. He has these confrontations like with the rich young ruler who wants to find eternal life and says, you got to sell all your stuff. And he walks away sad. And Jesus is feeling sad that he's walking away. He's not proud of his self-justification that he knows the right answer. He's desperately trying to reconcile all of us. And so whether the people agree or disagree, he's aimed at loving them and inviting them into a different kind of relationship with them. And finally, he always backs up his opinion with action. He doesn't just float ideas. He doesn't just say, here's here's how I think it should be. He is actively working towards the solution, which costs him uh, time and time again. I wrote down a handful of short stories of ways I think Mill City Church is already doing these things. Will you just leave these up for a minute, Adam? I see so many of you uh, pursuing and risk-taking to try to show and confront evil and sin in the world. And in fact, this season of Mill City's life, we're confronting 
more and more things that are wrong in the world than maybe we ever have before. We have, we have people who are confronting worldwide problems, like Kelsey, who's on our team, who's running multiple marathons in a, in a month to raise money for kids who are um, being oppressed, who are being enslaved, for people who don't have clean water. I don't even know how anyone runs 26.2 miles. She's doing it twice in a month to try to raise money and awareness for children who have needs worldwide. We have a family, the Morfords, who are getting ready to sell their house to move to Indonesia to find ways to share the gospel and start churches all the way across the world because they feel called by God to put themselves at risk and challenge people to love God more. We have a missional community that's been loving a neighborhood who's now changing their focus to try to address and increase awareness about how racism is affecting our relationships in our neighborhoods and fighting against that. We have a missional community who went to Tampa and came back to get trained to go into strip clubs and share the gospel with women by loving them and providing for them and inviting them into relationship. They're doing this monthly. We have entrepreneurs in this congregation who are creating jobs and opportunities for people who are seeing things that are wrong about all sorts of industries and working hard to change those things. We have teachers in our congregation who are battling every single day, who wake up every day and enter the classroom with the same kids, trying to convince those kids how amazing they are and how much potential they have and how much they can learn if they apply themselves and listen to what they're being taught. We have people who are out raising money. Do you know how many fundraisers are in this congregation? People who are out raising money for good causes, trying to help people with their taxes, trying to help people raise money to feed children, trying to raise money to help people in all sorts of different ways. The list goes on and on and on and on. We are constantly being invited to confront sin and evil in the world, not just by launching our opinion, regardless of how people respond, but by putting ourselves at risk the way that Jesus did and confronting things and saying, this is not okay, and I'm gonna invest myself and my life and my family's life in making wrong things right because that's what God's about. We are constantly being invited to be part of God's redeeming and restoring the world through the work of Jesus Christ. Let me allow the, ask the band to come back up. Here's the final story of confrontation. I just want to finish with this. The cross represents the ultimate story of confrontation. It is this space and time when Jesus confronts sin and evil and death with himself. He is the confrontation. He confronts sin and evil by giving himself up, by self-sacrifice, by allowing people to kill him even though he didn't have to do that. He says to his father, not my will, but your will. Confrontation for us is ultimately about submitting to what God wants and then being willing to enter into a life that confronts sin and evil and death the way that Jesus did. The cross, I think, is the best lens for us to look at this. So think about your life. Think about your work life. Think about your neighborhood life. Think about your everyday life. There are all these binary problems that people want to force you down. And if you just sort of 
Imagine a, a, a cross, the shape of a cross being a lens through which you have to look in order to understand those things. You start to understand the ways that God is inviting us to confront with our very lives the things that are destroying everyone around us. When we look at the cross, we see confrontation as self-sacrifice, as humility, as grace. So how is God inviting you to put yourself at risk and challenge people to trust God more in confronting sin and confronting evil in this world? Despite constantly avoiding either-or traps, there's one either-or that Jesus is constantly pushing. And that is, he says to everyone he meets, either you trust me or you don't. Either you follow me or you don't. Either you believe that I am the son of God here to give you life and freedom and forgiveness or you don't. And I think that that, that question and that conversation, that way of thinking about the world is desperately needed. We need a kingdom orientation through the things that are facing us right now. Jesus is inviting us to follow him in the way of the cross and confronting the things that are wrong with the world. And it isn't easy and it isn't cheap, but it's the way to have life and meaning and purpose. And it's the way to step into eternal life with this confidence that you have done with your life what God invited you to do. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We respect the gifts that you have given us. We know, Lord, that you have given way more than we can even understand. Jesus, you confront each and every one of us in the areas that we need to be confronted. You do it with love and grace and mercy and invitation. You say to us day in and day out, I have done for you what you don't need to do for yourself. You are forgiven. Now go and do something different with your life. We thank you for being a God who stands up for women who are accused. We, we pray and thank you for being a God who stands up for people who don't have a voice. We pray that you're a God for people who have lots of resources and abilities and are wondering what to do with them. God, you engage every single one of us and every one of us has an opportunity when we step out this door to be part of the way in which you are confronting the world and getting rid of evil and sin and all of its effects. And we pray this morning in Jesus' name that the world would look more and more like you intended to, that you would give us the courage to step into the risky things that you would have us do to be part of the redemption and the restoration of all of your creation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The band's gonna play this song and they wanted to invite you, at least for the first part, to just listen, reflect on the words, reflect on what you just heard me say, what God's saying to you, and then they'll invite you to stand and sing. Saved our hearts. 
Yeah.